Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 367, Move or You Will Be Moved, Part 2. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Teresa, Melissa, and Katie for signing up already. Swain Godwinson was exiled. Again. Only this time, it was for life. And as that judgment came down, the Godwins must have realized that they'd been maneuvered into blind dependence on the king's mercy. And even Edward's own biographer would later admit that the king didn't have an ounce of mercy in him at this point. Though, to be fair to Edward, Swain really had been pressing his luck for, well, pretty much his entire life. And that was before he decided to raise an army to attack the king in support of his father. Which, let's be honest, had to have been a violation of the terms of his previous pardon. Swain really had been testing the outer limits of forgiveness. And the truth was that King Edward had been more forgiving to Swain than even some of the members of his own family. But, under the king's largesse... Swain had decided to graduate from light treason to open armed rebellion. So I can understand why Edward banished him for life. Though, at the same time, taking Swain's son as a hostage before he banished him was, to use a technical term, a dick move. But now that the hostages were in his possession, King Edward and his supporters rode to London. And as he went... He sent messengers out to the Midlands and to the north, commanding the nobles from those regions to meet him in the old city for a witan. As the king marched, Earl Godwin was also headed to London, attempting to avoid an all-out civil war. But he wasn't an idiot, so he went with company. He brought his sons, his loyal thanes, and his army. But two weeks is a long time. And King Edward knew that as the days passed, and as more nobles and soldiers answered the king's call, Godwin's army would begin to lose morale. And sure enough, within days, Godwin's army began to dwindle. And it's hard to blame them. They were an armed force marching to London with Godwin. For what? So he could defend himself and seek the king's justice? Well, that might make some sense if it wasn't for the fact that they just rebelled and threatened to battle that very same king. So you don't have to be a lawyer to know that Godwin's chances of getting a favorable outcome with the king's justice were pretty slim. Furthermore, the social and religious implications of what had just happened and how it had failed would have sat like a weight upon each and every one of them. In medieval English spirituality, these actions could easily have been interpreted as going against God's will, especially after they appeared to have lost the negotiation. And going against God's will for a few folk in Dover and a spat in the court would probably have seemed like a silly trade-off. And the longer that this went on, the more time that the nobles and soldiers had to think about these moral and spiritual quandaries and whether they are willing to risk going to hell for Godwin's honor. And meanwhile, as the king was refusing to back down, Godwin was making decision after decision that was making him look weak. 
and the army would have watched as Godwin handed his son and his grandson over to the king and gained nothing in return. Even Unferth would have been able to see who had power here and who didn't. And so, as Godwin was stationed in Southwark, probably at his family's estate there, he could only watch helplessly as his army diminished day after day. And once Edward's forces dwarfed the remaining Godwin loyalists, the king pressed his advantage. He sent Godwin a summons. The rebel earl was ordered to present himself before the council and stand trial for his crimes. Now, we're not told what charges Godwin and his son faced. The scribes apparently believed that the facts of the case were self-evident because they didn't even bother writing any of it down. But whatever they were facing, it must have been significant. And Godwin had to have recognized exactly how much danger he was in. I mean, he'd just watched the king condemn his eldest son and heir to exile for life, and he'd done it after hostages were provided. This was looking really bad, and what Godwin needed right now was leverage, and he needed it yesterday. So he sent a messenger back to the king, and this messenger was likely his ally, Bishop Stigand. And Godwin asked the king to promise him safe passage into the city, and to provide hostages in order to seal the deal. King Edward, in response, commanded Godwin to hand over all of his thanes. Now, we're not given the precise wording of how this message was sent, but I imagine that King Edward pointed out that there was a council that required the nobles of England, and Godwin was retaining a good portion of them at his estate in Southwark. And if he wanted safe conduct for the trial, then he would need to stop acting like a rebel. Or, you know, something like that. Whatever arguments and wording the king used... They must have worked because Godwin agreed. I mean, the king really did have a point there. And so he surrendered his thanes to Edward. And once the thanes crossed the Thames and joined the king's forces, King Edward provided Godwin nothing. He was given absolutely nothing in return for his obedience. And instead, the king sent another message demanding that Godwin and his sons enter London and stand trial. But for Godwin, nothing had changed. Well, actually, that's not entirely true. Things had changed, but they've gotten worse. Without his thanes, he was now in even more danger than he'd been just a few days earlier. So when Godwin received the king's summons, the second one, he responded that he would be happy to do as he was commanded the minute that the king promised him safe conduct into the city and provided hostages as a surety. And King Edward responded, by sending another summons, demanding that Godwin and his sons present themselves before the council. And he was getting tired of having to say this. But at the same time, he added that if they were so worried about their safety, they could bring 12 companions with them. Now, you don't need to be a military genius to know that 12 men aren't going to be much help if the king and his army decided to seize and execute Godwin and his sons. And Godwin likely guessed that there would be assassins waiting for him on the other side of the Thames. I mean, nothing about what was happening here seemed safe. Nor did it seem that this trial would go down fairly. Godwin certainly would have known that the court would be hostile to him, and that the trial would be stacked against him. So without some sort of guarantee, the most likely outcome was that he'd be ordered to undertake an impossible ordeal or the king would demand that he take insanely burdensome oaths that would give him no choice but to refuse. Without hostages, 
he was entirely at the mercy of the king. And again, this was a king that even his own scribes described as pretty much without mercy at this point. So Godwin once again sent his emissary back to the king and assured Edward that his one desire was to prove his innocence at trial. He was ready to do it, and all he wanted was a promise of safety and some sort of surety so he could do exactly that. But King Edward was under no obligation to provide hostages or even promises to men who were accused of committing crimes. And Godwin had been accused of plotting murder. He'd also disobeyed the king on multiple occasions, and he'd even raised an army against him. And regardless of how reasonable Godwin's concerns were, every time he asked for these sureties, he was basically accusing the king and his council of dishonor. Now, reasonable people with healthy emotional boundaries would look at this situation and probably think, you know, this isn't normal, but my father-in-law is clearly in fear for his life and he'd already handed over hostages and all of his thanes at my command. And despite all that's happened, he came when he was summoned, and this whole time he's been insisting on his innocence. I should probably take that into account when weighing what he's saying now. That's what reasonable, healthy people would probably think. But Edward was not a reasonable person with healthy emotional boundaries. King Edward was an 11th century English king. So Edward sent Bishop Stiggin back to Earl Godwin with a message. Godwin was standing at his table when Stiggin arrived, in tears. The old bishop told his ally that there would be no hostages. However, the king would make peace with the Godwins and pardon all of them once Godwin brought Edward's brother, Alfred, back to life. And there it was. All of Godwin's fears came true. There was no chance for a fair trial here, so their only choice was to run, and run they did. Godwin pushed the table back, ran to his horse, leapt on its back, and fled. With him was his wife, Githa, their sons, Harold, Swain, Tostic, and Leofwina, and whatever retainers remained with them. But Archbishop Robert must have been watching Godwin's estate when this happened. And that was probably wise, because he'd been a major architect of this situation. And he would have known that if Godwin escaped and rallied himself elsewhere, it would be his ass on the line. So Archbishop Robert and his men left on their horses as well, and they gave chase to the Godwins. These rebels could not be allowed to escape. But the Godwins had too much of a head start. And they probably knew the land better than the French Archbishop. So try as he might, he was not able to catch up with them on the road. And at some point, Harold and Leofwina split off and headed to Bristol to take advantage of a ship that Swain had already prepared and made ready for a quick getaway. And you know, in most situations, I'm guessing that having a hot mess of an older brother probably sucked. But right now, I bet Harold saw the benefit of having an older brother who was experienced in having the full military might of the state coming after him. Because who else in this family would have made preparations like this? Who else would just happen to have a ship ready for a quick getaway? Only Swain. And after a short ride, Harold and Leofwina made it to Bristol, boarded the ship, and escaped to Ireland. Meanwhile, the rest of the group made for the family estate at Bosham. And staying ahead of Archbishop Robert and his men, they managed to board a ship harbored at Thorny Island, 
before the king's Norman allies could catch them. The Godwins had escaped Edward's wrath with their lives, but not much else. The fact was, they had fled from a summons for trial. So not only had they added the crime of evasion, they'd also forfeited the right to defend themselves against anything they'd been accused of. The next morning, King Edward declared the Godwins outlawed and sent Bishop Eldred in pursuit of Harold and Leofwina. The king then seized their lands and titles and gave some of them to his various supporters, likely to loyal members of the Witan and to Edward's French allies, including Archbishop Robert. A lot of people were getting rich off of this, but none more than Edward. The Godwins were extremely wealthy, and the lion's share of that wealth was now in King Edward's possession. But that was just a perk. The main goal here was the destruction of the House of Godwin. So simply taking their lands and outlawing them wouldn't be enough. What the king and his allies had just done was an astounding seizure of power from the House of Godwin. It was a coup on the major power structure in the South. But coups are only successful if they're able to keep what was taken. So what the king and his allies needed to do is ensure that this southern aristocratic house couldn't ever get back in power. And that was a fact that Archbishop Robert was keenly focused on. And so he pushed Edward for a complete purge of the House of Godwin and their allies, which included divorcing Queen Edith. They all had to go. But while King Edward did listen to Robert of Jumiege on a lot of issues, he didn't go as far as Robert would have liked. The king did seize all of Edith's lands and property, and he went and stuffed her in a nunnery. And we're told that when she arrived at Wilton Abbey, it was without any honors, and she was only attended by a single maid. He'd completely impoverished his wife. And that's a big change for someone who'd been a queen only the week before, and had spent her entire life in the halls of power as the daughter of the most powerful noble in all of England. And in doing this, I think we're learning something about Edward as a person not just as a political figure. Edward was vindictive. Edith's only crime here was being the daughter of Godwin, but that was enough for Edward, her husband, to use his power to essentially impoverish and imprison her. Nice guy. But there's also more to this. By choosing this route, Edward was also keeping his options open. The Godwins were still alive and they still had powerful allies. It was in Edward's interest to keep Edith healthy and safe, and to try to avoid dishonoring her too much. Because if Godwin and his sons made a comeback, which was absolutely a possibility, Edward might need a way to repair that relationship. And if he killed Edith, or even divorced her, that option would be closed to him. So putting her in a nunnery without any frills was probably as much as he could get away with while still keeping his options open. And so he took all her stuff and locked her away. But poor Edith wasn't the only person being purged from the halls of power. Godwin had a lot of allies in the South, and it seems that they all found themselves the target of the crown basically overnight. One story in particular jumps out. We're told of a Benedictine monk who'd just been elected as the Bishop of London. His name translated meant Sparrowhawk, but in Old English, it sounds way cooler. Spear Havoc. And Spear Havoc, like many Southern nobles, had been aligned with Godwin. But once the crown turned against the family, 
Bishop-elect Spear Havoc was ousted from his new position by Archbishop Robert of Jumièges, and he was also expelled from London. But Spear Havoc wasn't a stupid man, and he probably saw what was coming. So by the time that the Archbishop made his move against him, the Bishop-elect had already fled abroad, but he didn't leave empty-handed. With him on the boat was the treasure that he took from London, bags of it including all the gold and gems that had been set aside for Edward's crown. It's a spectacular story, and it's one of those rare wins for those allied with Godwin. But regardless of the exploits of Spear Havoc, the fact was that the king and his allies were on a rampage, and before long, the Godwin loyalists were purged, and their wealth was seized. The king's triumph was complete, you know, minus a few of those gemstones. But it wasn't long before messengers began to arrive in court. One came from Count Baldwin V of Flanders, and another from King Henry I of France. Two of the most powerful nobles in Europe were writing to Edward, and they were doing it because they both wanted to intercede on Godwin's behalf. They told the king that Godwin simply wanted a lawful trial and asked Edward to make peace with Godwin and grant him mercy. And the Vita tells us that they wrote in vain, because, quote, the malice of evil men had shut up the merciful ears of the king, end quote. Edward was king in England. Not Baldwin, not Henry, and certainly not Godwin. It was Edward's word that was law. And this matter was settled and there was nothing these foreign nobles could say that would sway the king from his position. It was done. And then shortly afterwards, some sources claim that Duke William of Normandy crossed the channel with a large company of soldiers, and there he met with King Edward. So why would William do that? Well, the Dowager Queen Emma was William's great aunt, and she'd fallen very ill at this point. She would actually be dead within a year. So William might have shown up on English shores wanting to check in with his auntie. It's also possible that William arrived for the same reason that likely motivated Count Eustace's original trip to England. The king was childless and he had a claim on the throne of England. So he might have wanted to know where he stood with King Edward. And he also might have wanted to curry a little favor while he was at it. But here's the thing. None of those reasons would have required a large army of Frenchmen. And it sure is strange that William and a whole army decided to show up right when England nearly devolved into a brutal civil war. A civil war that was only avoided because Godwin steadfastly refused to fight the king, even after he was antagonized. And let's face it, the crown was really antagonizing him. Ravaging Dover, occupying Hereford, occupying Gloucester, taking his thanes, taking his son, taking his grandson, outlawing his other son for life, and openly mocking his request for peace by insisting that he learns necromancy. I mean, even Edward's own biographer admit that he was malicious as hell here. And yet, rather than launching a civil war, Godwin stood his forces down. With all the attacks on his family and all the attacks on his honor, that's kind of incredible. And I wonder if William, arriving with his army at an England that wasn't at war, was all, 
Oh, wow. Well, uh, this is a surprise. So how's my aunt? I mean, he had to have brought those soldiers for a reason, right? And granted, it's totally possible that William heard Godwin was squaring off with Edward at Gloucester and decided he'd help out and he just happened to arrive after the ruckus had already died down. That is possible. But here's the thing that gives me pause. Count Eustace II of Boulogne wasn't just King Edward's cousin. He was also an ally of Duke William of Normandy. In fact, Eustace was so close with William that we see them again fighting together on a famous battlefield. Eustace and William were close. And I find it very interesting that it was Eustace who started this fight with Godwin. It was Eustace who was pushing for war between Edward and Godwin. And it was Eustace who was trying to provoke direct battle even as the English earls were trying to avoid a civil war. And it was a civil war that would have devastated the Ferd. A civil war that would have left a massive chunk of the English nobility either dead or too depleted to fight another battle. But despite all the provocation, Godwin did the one thing that no one appears to have expected. He was conciliatory to a fault. And even when the king openly mocked him and made a bishop cry, he chose exile rather than war. That must have surprised everyone, and probably no one more than Count Eustace. And then suddenly, Eustace's ally, William of Normandy, arrived in England with a large army of Frenchmen. To do what? Visit and catch up on the latest English gossip? I don't know, guys. I get the feeling that William and Eustace had a plan here. You should see me in a if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join any of our communities. The Reddit community is really starting to catch on. And you can find links to all of them in the communities section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.